Amen, amen. So, so I'd like to keep you informed of my many exploits. So, so you know I've been hiking, feel pretty good. So we went out and bought Deborah a new bike. So you all pray for us, pray for us. No, seriously, pray for us. I had, I had thoughts the other day of putting up LL Cool J or Mark Wahlberg on the door and putting my face on them. I, obviously, I need prayer. <laughs> Lift your hearts to the Lord. Father, we just thank you so much, so much, so much for salvation and for your love and your grace and your mercy towards us. We pray today that our hearts would be pliable, that your word would enter and bring increase in our lives, increase our joy and increase our strength that we might be able to glorify you. Bless the pastor in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Carl. Amen. So we are continuing on this series, this theme of joy, um, and we're looking at uh, the, the, the letter to the Philippians. It's a two-page letter, really. You can read it. You can actually, if I get really boring today during the sermon, just read the, read the, whole, the whole book of Philippians. It takes 15 minutes. It's about two pages, but it is packed with this theme of joy. And the irony is that Paul is writing it from a prison cell. He's chained to a guard, and he's writing this. And, and 16 times in this little two-page letter, he uses the phrase joy, either joy or rejoice, or this, this word joy. And I kind of was going through it this week and counting it out. Eight of the times that he's talking about joy, he's talking about his own joy. He's saying, I rejoice. I am glad. My heart is gladdened. Eight of the times... He's talking about the joy of the people to whom he's writing, which was originally the Philippians, but then ultimately to us. And five of the times that he's referencing joy, he's directing the reader to rejoice. He's saying, rejoice, have joy. And if, you know, on first blush, you could think that he's just saying something as simple as, hey, cheer up, right? Buck up, camper, something like that, right? But I don't think that's what he's doing. Uh, have you ever had someone tell you, like, during a stressful or tense situation, have you ever had someone say, just relax? You ever heard, you know, have, has anybody? That's the least relaxing thing that someone can ever tell you when you're tense. When somebody says, hey, Brent, just relax, it makes me just want to pop them right in the nose and say, you relax. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, I don't ever do that, but I feel like it. Um, this week, my. There's a song, there's a song, uh, if, you've, if you have preschoolers, it's this show called Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, and parents are already chuckling. Um, there's a song in Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, and it says, if you feel real mad that you want to roar, take a deep breath and count to four, something like that, I don't know the melody, and then it goes one, two, three, four, right? Um, it's a cute song. And the other day, I'm in my office, and Jameson, my six-year-old, is messed up in his drawing. And he gets really, really, he's a kind of a perfectionist. He's really ticked off when he's, you know, when he misses, when he messes up. And so he comes into my office, and he is steaming mad. I mean, just steaming mad. And he's, you know, he's got his mean mug on, and his little nose is crinkled up, and his fists are clenched, and his little skinny arms are all, you know, tight. 
And so I'm trying to walk him through this and, and you know, say, hey, it's okay. And his four-year-old brother comes in to the room with this impish smile, right? And I think he was genuinely trying to help out. But he goes, if you feel so mad that you want to roar. And I look at Jameson, and I'm like, Jameson is about to deck Lincoln right now. So I'm like, Lincoln, not right now. Take the song to another room. Um, but Paul is not talking. Is not, Paul's not saying, hey, just relax. He's not saying, hey, cheer up in the midst of your struggles, right? He's saying something deeper than that. It, it, the Philippians 4.4 4 says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice over and over and over. Five times in this passage, he says, rejoice. But there's something deeper going on with this concept of rejoicing. And we're going to explore what he's talking about today. Wouldn't you like to be able to say, I rejoice despite the circumstances in my life? Lose my job, I'm rejoicing, right? Somebody betrays me, somebody hurts me, I'm still rejoicing. Problem in a relationship, I'm rejoicing. Get diagnosed with an illness, I'm rejoicing, right? problem with the spouse, I'm rejoicing. Husband doesn't take out the trash, I'm rejoicing, right? If it, you know, if we were able to truly experience this sense of genuine deep joy all the time, that I think is what Paul is driving at here, and he's trying to get us to understand what that is in this passage, in this, um, in this book. So let me just, let me backtrack into Philippians 1 before we jump into Philippians 2. Philippians 1 verses 23 through 25 is this fascinating little piece because it comes after a really um, well-known, famous passage. But in, in verse 23, Paul says, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Paul's waiting execution, and he's like, look, I've, I've worked hard. I'm, I've done what I'm supposed to do. I'm good to go. I'm, I'm, I would actually rather be with Christ. But he says, it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. I need to stay here on earth. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you. Why, he says, for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul's saying the reason I am sticking around here is to help you strengthen, mature, progress in the faith, and to strengthen and increase your joy in the Lord. That's my purpose. And then he goes through this letter and systematically shows us and demonstrates us how we are to experience the joy of the Lord in our lives. Um, I found a quote this week that I really liked. I put it in your bulletin. It's by Chuck Swindoll. He says, In vain I have searched the Bible, looking for examples of early believers whose lives were marked by rigidity, predictability, inhibition, dullness, and caution. Fortunately, he says, grim, frowning, joyless saints in Scripture are conspicuous by their absence. They're not in there. Instead, he says, the examples I find are of adventurous, risk-taking, enthusiastic, and authentic believers whose joy was contagious even in times of full trial. Even in the bad times, the saints are experiencing joy. It's 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 a spiritual sense that stays with you in the good and in the bad is what he's describing here. Um, if I'm to be totally honest with you, this week has been a difficult week for me to experience the joy of the Lord. Uh, last Sunday after service, after I preached on joy, 
I got on a train uh, on an Amtrak and went to Chicago. Uh, and then I went down to Wheaton College. I've got a really good buddy um, there at Wheaton College. His name is Brett Foster. And I found a really nerdy picture of him uh, right there that I'll put up. Um, Brett and I have been buddies for many, many years. We were college roommates, really great friends. Um, I've told stories about Brett here at U City Family Church. Brett and I used to cover the ears of your teenagers. We used to jump freight trains in mid-Missouri. We would get on a freight train, and we would just ride it until it stopped somewhere else, Kansas City, you know, Oklahoma, and get off, um, and then ride another one back. Uh, you've heard me tell stories about Brett. Brett is the guy that was standing beside me uh, when I was on the streets of New York City, and we lost all of our money in a game of three-card Monty. That was Brett. Um, I lost all my money, and then I convinced him to throw some in. Um, he's never totally forgiven me for that. That's, that, that's Brett. Um, Brett is the guy I told you about where we were on a road trip with Ian Noyes and Brett Foster and I, and we were leaving Las Vegas, and we were driving, and Brett fell asleep in the back seat. I fell asleep in the passenger seat. Ian apparently drove us to Sedona, parked the car at the edge of a cliff, descended the cliff to go down and wash in the river, which is so weird anyway, but um, an officer wakes us up, Brett and I, from a dead sleep. What are you guys doing here? It was, you know, I've told that story, but there were, there were a lot of police involved, apparently, in our younger days when Brett, Brett and I got together. But um, Brett called me two weeks ago and said, hey, man, I just want to... I want to share something with you. And, and the way Brett and I call, we, we never actually get a hold of each other on the phone. He leaves me a voicemail, and then a week later, I leave him a long, ridiculous voicemail, and that's how we, that's how we communicate. Well, finally, we got a hold of each other. He said, I need to tell you. He said, I've been diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer. He says, it's not, it is not looking good. And um, it was just a shock to the system. He's 41 years old. He's got a beautiful wife. He's got two beautiful kids. You know, he's got a, an amazing career. He's a well-respected English professor at Wheaton. Um, you know, he's a Wallace Stegner fellow. He got his PhD from Yale. He's like, he's just tracking in life. Like, things are going great. And then, bang, this diagnosis comes down. Stage four colon cancer. So I went up, and I visited him. And we just spent, the, you know, we spent Monday just hanging out and talking. We were, both did a little bit of work because he's a workaholic, and um, so am I. And so we, but, but we just got to hang out and spend some time together. Um, and on my way back on the train on Tuesday morning, you know, I thought, well, th- you know, this will be good time for me because it'll be like a five-hour block with no interference, and I'll work on my sermon about joy <laughs> for next Sunday. But it's not terribly easy to work on a sermon about joy when you're leaving a circumstance like that. Because the reality is that being a Christian does not immunize us from suffering. It doesn't immunize us from grief. It doesn't mean that we won't experience sadness. It does not mean that we will not experience sorrow. But what it does mean, what Paul does mean in Philippians is that despite the circumstances and in the midst of the pain, there is still hope, there is still peace, there is still courage, and yes, there is still joy for the believer. Because the believer knows that there is something beyond the circumstances that the believer is facing in that moment. 
And so the thing that we know is beyond the circumstances outweighs the emotions we experience in the circumstances. And that's what Paul is saying is that there is a deep, abiding, powerful, pervasive sense of joy that can, ex- that, that can accompany you through life as a believer no matter what you are experiencing on the outside. The scripture says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. It says that he will never leave you nor forsake you. It says that through Christ you can do all things. It says that in the world you're going to have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. It says weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning, right? That's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about a joy that extends beyond the external circumstances of our lives. I know that there are some today that are experiencing uh, relationship issues and job issues and health issues and school issues and career issues, and yet we are called to look beyond those circumstances and look unto the hills from whence come our help. Our help comes from the Lord. There's something bigger going on in the world and in the universe and in the lives of believers than what we can just see on the outside. One of the things that Brett said when I was visiting him, uh, he said, I'm not going to focus on the survival statistics. I'm not going to obsess over the odds of my treatment success, he said. I'm going to focus on spending time with my family and continuing to do what I'm called to do. He said, I'm going to use this diagnosis as an opportunity to focus on what's really important to me and to do my best work yet. Brett is a believer. He loves God. And you know, as he said that, I'm, it reminded me of Paul saying, I'm going to press on toward the goal for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I'm going to finish the race. Remember, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to do my very best, and I'm going to use this as an opportunity to finish strong, whatever that might be. It might be a year. It might be 15 years, but I'm going to go for it in God. God is calling us to something greater than just the emotional experience that we have when something good happens. You know, it was, it was sort of amazing because Brett and I are hanging out and he's being highly optimistic and I'm sort of sitting there sort of stewing in, you know, fear and anxiety. And it reminded me of the, the optimist and the pessimist, you know, that fell out of the plane. I don't know if you heard about these guys, but they were, fell out of a plane and about every hundred feet, the pessimist said, oh no, we're going to die. And the optimist said, hey, so far so good. Um, but... Uh, but God's calling us something to something greater than false optimism, right? It's not just we want to be happy and, and God's calling us to that. He's calling us to something deeper. So how do we do it? I'm going to briefly just touch base with you on everything and recap what we talked about last week um, just so that we're all up to speed on what we're talking about. Uh, number one is that happiness is not joy and joy is not happiness. They're not, they're not the same thing. Happiness is good. Okay, but it's not joy. Um, Happiness is a transient emotional state. Joy is a persistent spiritual condition. And what does that mean? What that means is that happiness is totally and completely contingent upon the external circumstances in our lives. In other words, there's going to be you can graph it. There's a stimulus. There's a thought about the stimulus. And then there's an emotion. Okay, so your boss comes in, puts his hand on your shoulder and says, hey, good news. 
we love your work, we're going to give you a raise, and we're going to give you a promotion. That's the stimulus. Thought. I like raises. I like promotions. Right? Emotion. I'm happy. Right? This is, this is, this is the graph of what just happened. Scenario number two. Boss comes into the room, puts his hand on your shoulder. Hey, I want you to know we got to make some cutbacks, and sorry, but your department is axed. Right? Thought. That's a huge bummer because I have a mortgage and I've got bills to pay and how am I going to make, you know, any money? Emotion, unhappy, right? It's really, really simple. Happiness is extremely simple. It's just a circumstance and then a thought about the circumstance and then an emotion. But joy is underneath all of that, okay? Joy, the joy of the Lord, as Paul is describing it, is a deep and persistent sense of hope and confidence that God is with us despite our present circumstances. In other words, joy doesn't mask circumstances. It doesn't deny circumstances, but it underlies the circumstances so that if you take this definition of joy and apply it to scenario number two, boss comes in and says, you know, you're axed. You're still going to think that's not good. You're going to have an unhappy feeling, but underneath it, there's a trust and a confidence and a peace that God's got it under control. And so you say, look, I'm going to maintain joy because I trust that there's a God who holds the universe in his hands and he happens to love me. That's where we derive the joy of the Lord. Um, we talked uh, about three points that, that Paul was, was exposing in Philippians 1, and I'll just hit on them very quickly. In Philippians 1, he said, emphasize the important and ignore the irrelevant. Remember, he was talking about these guys that were out preaching, and he said they're, they're doing it for false motives. These guys are not in it for the right reasons, uh, but they are preaching Christ. And so he said, well, so what? In, in, in Ephesians 1, or Philippians 1, he says, so what? He says, they're preaching Christ. I'm going to focus on that, and I'm going to ignore the fact that they're doing it for false motives. So emphasize the important. Number two was adopt an eternal perspective. He said, to live is Christ, Right? Uh, to die is Christ, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. In other words, he said, I'm waiting execution. I'm chained here to a Roman uh, guard. I may die. I may live. If I die, that's good because I'll be with Christ. If I live, that's good because I'll be here to help encourage you and strengthen you in your joy because he had adopted an eternal perspective, right? I mean, it would be very easy for him to say, you know what? Being chained is not good. I'm called to preach. I should be out preaching, but he didn't do that. He said, look, I'm, I'm right here where I'm supposed to be. And, and that led to number three, which is find the testimony in your trial. What Paul said in Philippians 1 is, hey, I'm chained here. But here's the good news, guys. He says, actually, my chains have emboldened other brothers and sisters in the faith to go out and preach the gospel. So the chains are actually a good thing. He found the testimony in the midst of his trial. So that's what we went over last week. This week, Paul gets a little more pastoral. I wouldn't say in your face, but a little more sort of like nudging as a pastor. In, in Philippians 2, he very gently, very tenderly, very kindly, very pastorally says, hey guys, the key to joy is getting over yourself. That's what he says, getting over yourself. How many of you know or would admit that sometimes you need to get over yourself? A little bit? If you're not raising your hand, you need to get over yourself, all right? <laughs> Why don't you just turn to the neighbor next to you and say, get over yourself. Just do it. It feels so good. And turn to your other neighbor and say, you too. That means you too. 
Doesn't that feel good? Some of you are saying that with a little too much relish. I want you to pull back on that. Um, might have hit a nerve. Uh, but, but that's really what he's saying throughout chapter 2 is to experience joy, we need to get over ourselves. In, in verse 3, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now, let me hasten to add here. He's not saying if you're a person that tends to bow to the tyrannical demands of somebody else, that that's what you should do. He's not saying if you're a person who normally gets steamrolled, you should just be, you know, keep getting steamrolled. What he's saying is if, if you have a tendency to put yourself first above everything and you have this sense of self-importance, it may be valuable for you to lay that down and put the interests of somebody else before yours. Because you're likely to experience a different sort of joy by doing that than you would if you just always asserted your own rights and always stood on your own rights and indulged in and engaged in this sense of self-importance. So number one is he's saying we experience the joy of the Lord when we get over our sense of self-importance and learn to focus on the needs of others. Uh, I looked this up this week. Do you know what the word of the year was, according to Oxford Dictionary, in 2013? Yeah. How'd you know that? Selfie. Selfie. Everybody knows what a selfie is? Selfie is when you, you know, take Mother Ray. If Mother Ray says yes, I know what a selfie is. That tells me we're good. We good. The selfie is, 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 is ubiquitous. Selfie is when you take a picture with your iPhone or with your, you know, your handheld device, and then you upload it on social media. That's a selfie. So here, I'll do one, and I'll, I'll email it to you guys this week. How about that? Hold on. There we go. All right, that's not, that's not going to be a good one, but I'll, I'll email that to you this week. Selfie. Um, <laughs> in... Uh, in 2002, September of 2002, that was the first ever known published reference to a selfie. And what it was, there was an Australian uh, guy, uh, like a young 20-something, 21-year-old guy, who was a techie, and in a chat room on the internet, uh, like a techie chat room, um, he wrote uh, a, a selfie accompanied by a picture of himself. Now, this is a tiny bit graphic, okay, so... I mean, not graphic in a real bad way, but it's a little bit graphic. So go ahead, Ryan, and put that up there. Oh, you can't really see it. Okay. All right. Well, here's the thing. That's his lip up there at the top. It's a little blurry. And he's got stitches on it because you can see why. On his, on his selfie, on his post, it says, um, Drunk at a mate's 21st, I tripped over. I think he meant over. Uh, I tripped over and landed lip first with front teeth coming a very close second on a set of steps. Sorry about the focus. It was a selfie. That was September 13, 2002. Um, We have not gotten much further along the line of selfies. Um, We're pretty much still there. Oxford Dictionary said that in the year 2013... um, You can take that one off, Ryan. Excuse me. Uh, (laughs) Thanks. Um... Uh, the term selfie increased on the internet by 17,000%. There are 57 million photos bearing the hashtag selfie 
on Instagram alone. And now the term selfie has given rise to a number of dubious offspring, including the healthy, which is a picture of one's own hair. It's true. A wealthy, which is a selfie while working out, which is totally obnoxious. Please don't do that. Um, and then there's a drelfy, which is a photograph of yourself when drunk, which brings us back to the very first selfie ever recorded. Here we are 10 years later. Um, and this trend on social media, not just selfies, but other trends and, and language analyses, have led some experts to believe that we are experiencing what's called a narcissism epidemic, which means we're seeing an uptick and people who are completely and totally self-absorbed, self-interested, self-important. And the research is showing that as people are increasingly self-absorbed, they're also experiencing increased aggression, increased materialism, a shallower sense of values and morality, a greater likelihood of addiction, a greater need for constant attention and praise, a fragile sense of self-esteem, an inability to handle criticism, a lack of interest in the problem of other, problems of others, difficulty maintaining relationships, greater psychological suffering, and greater loneliness. I don't know about you, but it sounds like the more we focus on ourself, the less joyful we become. So it's fascinating that in the first century, the Apostle Paul writes to the first Philippians and writes to us and says, put the interests of others above yourself if you want to experience real joy. Don't insist on your own way all the time. And then he follows this admonition up with the supreme example. In verse uh, 5, he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, or your, your translation may something to be grasped. Rather, it says, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death on the cross. Paul's saying, look at Jesus, who laid down the crown of glory to put on a peasant's robe, to come and put your interests above his interests so that he could sacrifice for you to bring you joy and to bring you into a relationship with the Father. By implication, Paul's saying, how much more ought we to lay down our own self-interest and our own sense of self-importance and maybe serve the needs of other people to live a life of glorious and radical generosity to make sacrifices for God and his people to reach out and help the people in our community and bring some joy into the lives of others. I would say that if you would take an inventory of your life, and I, I did this this week, I would... I would argue that you would find that the most joyless times in your life were accompanied by an over-preoccupation with yourself. Overly examining yourself. Overly standing on your own sense of self-importance or self-entitlement or self-interest or self-fulfillment or self-actualization or self-righteousness or self-centeredness or self-absorption. That kills your joy. It just depletes it. It just knocks the wind out of your joy. There's a fascinating phrase in, uh, in Hebrews talking about Jesus. 
And it says that Jesus had endured, a cro- endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. So he walked into this life of sacrifice, even sacrifice unto death, for the joy that was set before him. He knew that real joy results from sacrificing for others and putting the interests of others before your, for your own. So that's number one, is get over the sense of you know, self-importance. Number two, Philippians 2.14 says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. We're just walking straight through the passage. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. So Paul's saying, if you want to truly shine, if you want to live out all that God has for you, if you want to experience true peace, true hope, true joy, uh, then you've got to get over the petty grievances and, you know, arguments and disputes and all that kind of stuff. I will say this to you as a church. This church, I think, is really unique in that there is an overwhelming sense of love and community and support for one another in this church. I don't know what was happening on... Amen. Thank you, Craig. Yes. Uh, I don't know. In, Philippian, in the Philippian church, there were some disputes and factions and all this kind of stuff. Praise be to God, there's, there's a lot of candor and a lot of openness among this congregation, and I just think we should praise God for it because it's not, it's, it's unique, you know, it's, it's, it's rare. Um, but nevertheless, all of us at times, either at church or at work or in our homes, we may have a tendency to sort of get into little spats and arguments and things like that. Um, I found a little quote this week I loved. It said, you're offended by the things I say? Imagine the stuff I hold back. <laughs> Look at her face. She's like, it's just such a great. Um, Paul's saying, don't pick fights with each other. Stop the dissension and the nitpicking. Um, and he uses an, a really interesting word there for the word grumbling. Uh, and, and, and it's the same word that is used to, to translate the Hebrew word that was used to describe the grumbling and the murmuring of the children of Israel as they wandered through the desert. And it's a, it's a term that it's not like, it's not a term where, where somebody comes and says, hey, I have an issue, I have a problem, I want to talk it out. It's a term that implies this sort of low, mumbling, under your breath, grumbling, not really expressing it, not really letting it out, but just sort of holding it in and letting it stew and fester. Uh, and the, the reality is that Paul's saying, you know, stop it. Like, bring it out, talk it out, figure it out, move on, get over this stuff. Because the reality is, I don't know if you've noticed this in your life, but in my life, most of the disputes, most of the arguments are pretty trivial. Like when you break them down, they're not very important. And churches do this worse than anyone. I I, I read this once before, um, but this is an old Emo Phillips routine. Some of you may know this. And, And Emo Phillips says that one day he says, I was walking across a bridge, and he says, I saw a man standing on the edge about to jump off. He says, so I ran over, and I said, stop, don't do it. And the man said, why shouldn't I? I said, well, there's so much to live for. And he said, like what? And I said, well, are you religious or atheist? And the guy said, I'm religious. And I said, me too. Are you Christian or Buddhist? And he said, I'm Christian. I said, me too. He said, are you Catholic or Protestant? He said, Protestant. I said, me too. He said, Episcopalian or Baptist? He said, Baptist. I said, wow, me too. Are you Baptist Church of God or Baptist Church of the Lord? 
He said, Baptist Church of God. He said, me too. Are you original Baptist Church of God or Reformed Baptist Church of God? He said, Reformed Baptist Church of God. I said, wow, me too. He said, are you Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1879 or Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915? He said, I'm Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915. I said, die, heretic scum, and I pushed him <laughs> off the bridge. <laughs> because Paul's saying, guys, these are joy killers. Don't be grumbling and mumbling amongst each other. Get over it. Move on. There are more important things in life. I would say this. If you want to experience the joy of the Lord in your life, apologize freely. Don't be afraid to apologize. It doesn't actually hurt. You know, it might bother you. It might bug you a little bit. You may even feel like, mm, I'm not totally sure. And, and here's the apology that you don't give, right? I'm sorry, but, right? You know this one. I'm sorry, but, because no matter what else you say, what you're really saying is, I'm sorry, but I'm really not sorry, right? I deserve to do whatever I did or say whatever I said. Apologize freely. Listen carefully to someone else's perspective. Put yourself in their shoes. Build bridges. Stop grinding your axe. Take the chip off your shoulder. Paul's saying, let's, let's work together. Let's build something beautiful. Let's bring joy. Let's bring transformation. Let's bring empowerment into our world and let go of the little stuff. Amen? And finally, the last principle here from Philippians 2 that he's, that he's advocating uh, for us is to take your faith seriously and your life lightly. Take your faith seriously and your life lightly. One of the most beautiful and compelling attributes about the Apostle Paul is how seriously he takes his faith and how lightly he takes his life. He's willing to undergo beatings and shipwrecks and chains and scoffing and mocking and persecution, and it's all very fine with him. Why? Because he's got something bigger that he's striving for, something greater that he's a part of, and he's pushing towards something bigger and something more powerful. And I think what he's saying here is that... Uh, Pouring your life out for something greater than yourself is one of the most joyful, beautiful things that you can do with your life. In 17, verse 17 and 18, he says, But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. If I'm being poured out, what he's, he's evoking this image, you know, in, in, in the, the ancient Israelites when there was a, uh, an animal being sacrificed and all the flames are coming up and it's hot, they would take a, a, a cup of wine and they would pour it over the sacrifice and that wine would hit the heat of the sacrifice and it would vaporize into a cloud and this plume of steam would rise and it would just dissipate and disappear. And Paul's saying, that's me. Even if I'm just being poured out so that I just disappear and I just become, a, you know, a, a, a fragrance for the Lord, that's good with me. I rejoice with that because my life, I take it very lightly. My faith in God, I take very, very seriously, right? And so he's saying, I want not only I rejoice in that, I want you to rejoice with me in that. Let me ask you this. Two questions. One, is there something in your life that you would right now in your own heart of hearts you would be able to say, I'm willing to die for that. Is there something in your life that you would be willing to die for? And the second question, 
If so, then is it something that you would be willing to live for? Is it something that you would be willing to sacrifice for and to live out your life for? Because there's no greater joy than pouring your life out for a cause greater than yourself. I would argue that the most joylessness, the most despair, the most suffering, the most unhappiness, the most despondency that we experience comes from taking our life too seriously and God not seriously enough. And I counsel people every week, and this is the theme that arises. People get stuck on themselves and on their own stuff, and they don't take God seriously enough. And they, you know, they flip the script and everything gets twisted, and they don't know why they just repeat this cycle of despair. When we turn our eyes on Jesus, we experience a joy that is much, much greater than when we turn our eyes upon ourselves. All right, I'm going to close with this. Um, while I was preparing the sermon, I sat down and I wrote out what would be the kind of world that I think would generate the most joy. Like what would be the most joyful world that I can imagine? And these, this is what I wrote. Um, it would be a world free from suffering. It would be free from violence. It would be free from pain. It would be free from abuse, free from addiction, free from corruption. It would be a world where everyone loved one another, where there was no bigotry or hatred, no injustice, no sickness, no death, where beauty and creativity abounded, where God felt present and near at all times, where selfish rivalries were laid to rest, and where everyone cared for their neighbor. That's the kind of world that I feel like as I sat down and wrote. That's the kind of world that I think would generate the greatest amount of joy. Now, if you sat down and wrote down your list, it may not be exactly like my list, but it would probably share some similarities. And this is, the, this is the brilliance of what Paul is saying in this passage. He's saying, if you want a world like that, if you want a world that is full of joy, then do everything in your power to build that world. Because the joy that you will experience in building that world will be unlike a joy that you've ever experienced under any other circumstances. He's saying, bring that peace into troubled homes. Bring comfort into wounded hearts. Lay down your own sense of self-entitlement. Value others above yourselves. Serve. Get over petty grievances and arguments. Build community and go all in for God. In other words, we experience the joy of the Lord when we do everything in our power to build the kind of world that has that kind of joy. You tracking with that? Last verse I'm going to read. Philippians 2, and at the very beginning of, 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 this, past, of this chapter, he said, um, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, he said, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. In other words, your joy expands to the extent that you bring joy into the lives of other people. Church, let's be a house of joy. Let's be a house where broken, hearted, troubled, hurting, struggling, addicted, messed up, screwed up, twisted, jacked up folks can come and experience the joy of the Lord. Amen? Let's do that. Let's lay down our own interests. Let's see beyond ourselves. And let's bring joy into the life of someone today. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you.
Thank you for your joy. Thank you for your love, your peace, your strength. Thank you for this amazing letter packed with joy amidst difficult and, and, and troubling circumstances. We thank you for the inspiration that it provides for us. We ask, God, that you give us the strength to live out the, the, the call of this letter, uh, that we could bring joy to others by putting uh, their interests above ours and by getting over our own sense of self-importance, God, uh, and, by, and, and, and just by reaching out and serving others and strengthening our community, God. We pray, Lord, that you would bring joy into our hearts today and help us to live out a life of joy the rest of this week and let this, be, let this be our default mode. Let us grow and mature and progress and develop into people who experience your joy no matter what. Father, we praise you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.